Welcome back to another episode of The Silent Battle. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. You guys are in for a real treat today. I'm so super excited for this segment. Again, I am your host, Erica Honeycutt, and today I will be interviewing Dr. Aaron Wilfong. Dr. Wilfong is a clinical instructor and board certified rheumatologist at Vanderbilt Medical Center. She is part of the Vanderbilt Division of Rheumatology and Immunology and the Vanderbilt Division of Allergy and Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. She is so kind to take some time out of her busy schedule to allow me to interview her. As most, if not all of you, know rheumatologists specialize in autoimmune diseases, which is why I asked Dr. Wilfong to be part of the podcast today. I have nonspecific interstitial pneumonia, NSIP, and I know the way it works in my case is I see a rheumatologist for the autoimmune part of my disease, and then I see a pulmonologist for my lung issues. My pulmonologist works with my rheumatologist to find the appropriate regimen and medications that work for me. So let's get started, and um, we'll go ahead and, and speak with Dr. Wilfong today. Welcome, Dr. Wilfong. Thank you for being part of the Silent Battle podcast today. Thank you guys so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to reach out and, you know, kind of answer these really important and scary questions for people struggling with us. It is, our, it is my pleasure. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, what causes or triggers autoimmune diseases? So we don't really know. And this is one of the biggest frustrations for patients and their families is that I can't look at them and say, this is why this happens. Um, we think that there's probably certain genetic predispositions. So, you know, a gene that maybe makes you a little bit more prone to developing an autoimmune disease, and then maybe there's something in the environment that triggers your immune system to start recognizing you instead of just viruses and bacteria. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know what those triggers are or what those genes are. And, you know, the question that always comes up with genetics is, you know, well, if there are genes, what about my kids? And we right. don't, you know, think that there's a big risk to kids if you have an autoimmune condition. And this is mainly lupus studies and rheumatoid arthritis studies because we don't, you know, Erica, have a lot of data for people with NSIP. Mm -hmm. But in those diseases, if you have two identical twins, so that means their genetics are exactly the same, only 10% of the time, if one twin has lupus or RA, will the other twin have lupus or RA? 90% of the time, only one twin is, is affected. And if it's a fraternal twin, so, you know, basically a sibling, there's only a 2 to 5% chance of the second sibling twin being affected, and the incidence of autoimmune disease in the population is 1 to 2%. percent there's a slightly increased risk, but it's not nearly as bad as some autoimmune diseases like celiac disease where 75% of identical twins have both. Mm -hmm. And so is there a gene maybe that's contributing Yes, but the environmental factor is probably massive in these diseases, and unfortunately we just don't know what that is as a subject of ongoing research. That was one of my questions to you. Is there any genetic connection to autoimmune yeah. diseases? 
So that's that's really interesting to hear about. Yeah, it's like I said, probably if you look at the overall number of diagnoses, it's usually in your 20s through 40s. Mm-hmm. But I have patients, you know, who had disease start at age three for now adults, and I I think my oldest new diagnosis was in their 80s. Oh wow, is it? You know, I've I've heard um, that if you have an autoimmune disease you're prone to getting other autoimmune diseases as well. Like, not you won't just have one. You might develop other ones along the way because of you already having that one. Is that true? Yes and no. So there are certain autoimmune diseases that tend to kind of run together. So autoimmune thyroid disease, Hashimoto's, which is the number one cause of low thyroid, mm-hmm more prevalent in people with another autoimmune condition. People with type 1 diabetes may see that more, you know, be more likely to have thyroid dysfunction or something else. Mm-hmm. As a general rule, these types of diseases tend to have different genes in your immune system that make you more prone to that type of disease. So we see rheumatoid arthritis can overlap with different diseases. That one, you know, can go back and forth. But we don't expect patients with, you know, systemic sclerosis or scleroderma to suddenly develop uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Those are very different things. Right. And so, you know, it's not, there are certain ones that your doctor may want to keep an eye on, but we don't expect that 
know, you have lupus, now you're going to get type 1 diabetes, and mm-hmm. then you're going to get, you know, embezzled multiple sclerosis or some other, you know, autoimmune condition. It's, right. There's a few that tend to kind of run together, but it's not like you're at risk for all of them. So which one you're a little higher risk for probably depending on which exact disease you have. Okay, okay. I got gotcha. you. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make a lot of sense. Um, can you explain about autoimmune markers that um, you all test for with blood work to confirm autoimmune diseases? Because I know that when they were tr- when doctors were trying to figure out what was going on with me, um, you know, rheumatology told me there were certain autoimmune markers that um, they tested me for to confirm that there is something autoimmune going on with with me. Yeah. So there's a lot of different um, autoimmune markers that can be tested and some of them, I tell my patients that some of them lie more than others. So their tests are for some diseases very sensitive, which means that it's very hard to have the disease or even almost impossible to have the disease without having that test positive. So mm-hmm. in the case of lupus, I'm sorry I keep using lupus as an example, but it works well for this. Yes. Um, over 99% of patients with lupus will have anti-nuclear antibodies, whereas for other diseases, only a third of patients will have that antibody, that marker. So what I'll do for a second, if it's okay, is kind of go through the common ones that are tested and talk about what it's showing us, but also where it lies and where it can get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. So anti-nuclear antibodies, if any of your listeners have been told, oh, you tested positive for lupus on blood work, this is probably what your doctor was talking about. Uh-huh. So when we do an anti-nuclear antibody test, it can be done different ways. Usually how it's done is we take the patient's blood and you put it on a microscope slide coated with cells and we see if your antibodies and your blood stain that cell. And while that is a sensitive test, it's you know, it's usually positive if you have lupus, mm-hmm. it is not what we call specific. So what that means is that just because you have the test doesn't mean you have lupus. So for young women, depending on the cost, anywhere from 3 to 5 to even 10% for some of the lower values will have positive anti-nuclear antibodies and be completely healthy and never have an autoimmune condition. And the frequency of anti-nuclear antibodies increases with age. The more times your body has been exposed to a virus or a vaccine or a bacteria or anything in the environment, mm-hmm. the more chances it has to make an anti-nuclear antibody. So a lot of my patients come to me and say, I tested positive for lupus. And it's important to realize that while that can be seen in lupus, it can also be seen with healthy people. So just because you have a test like that doesn't mean that, you know, it's definitely lupus. I see. And then there are other antibodies that are very specific. So if you have this antibody, we're very certain that you have the disease. So the anti-sensitase antibodies is one family. Certain of the scleroderma antibodies, you know, are very good and give us a good sense. Things mm-hmm. like rheumatoid factor is kind of like ANA. It can be helpful, but lots of people can have them because of infections or just age. Um, and so your doctors will use 
you know, not only the blood work, but also really their clinical expertise to think, does the blood work make sense for you? Because what we don't want to do is treat a testing. We want to treat the person sitting in front of us. Right. And so it's important that you see an experienced rheumatologist who deals with these diseases um, to say, you know, I, you have this antibody, but for X, Y, and Z reasons, I think that antibody is giving to us and is not the main driver versus, you know, for these three reasons, I really think it's telling us the truth. And that's where the interpretation comes in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things for patients, right? The, the test is abnormal and you're saying it doesn't matter. And it may not matter because we can see it helping people too. So... What you're saying is, is that you can't always go. No, no, no. Um, what you're saying is, you can't always go by that ANA yeah. test. Right. Or all of these tests, you know, can lie and fit, and that's where it's really important to work with a doctor you really trust. Uh huh. Um, to see whether the test is fitting for you, and I know that you know, doctor, you know, your doctors have talked a lot about. You know, does this make sense? Yes, this is what we think is going on. Right. Because looking at the patient, doing a really good physical exam, there can be those tiny little subtle clues that really tell us that, you know, the antibody is giving us a good clue. So right. it's not just the blood work, it's the blood work and you as the patient that helps us make that determination. Gotcha. Okay. And can you explain why routine blood work is necessary when being treated for autoimmune disease. And the reason I say, reason I ask this question is I, every time I go to uh, rheumatology, I always have labs. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's kind of like the routine thing. And so um, I, I, um, I ask this question because, you know, it seems like that like I said, I always have labs after uh, my checkup, and so I'm sure it's because with autoimmune diseases, um, something can always change very quickly, so maybe that's why I constantly have blood work, but I wanted to um, ask this question to you. Yeah. I think it's an important question because what I always tell my patients is I want my patients know everything I know because it increases the buy-in and understanding of why we're sticking you with needles all the time. There's two reasons to do blood work routinely when you have autoimmune disease. One is to keep an eye on the disease itself. So Mm -hmm. sometimes for some of my patients with blood disease, there are certain blood markers or maybe their muscle enzymes, they never get weak, but if their disease is becoming more active, I'll see those blood, you know, muscle markers start creeping up on me. Mm those can be to make sure that I'm controlling the other parts of the disease as well as I want it to, not just the lung. The other big reason why we need to check labs, you know, fairly frequently, and I'm sure you experience even more frequently with new medicine, yes. is to make sure that your body can tolerate these medicines. You know, medicine and the immunosuppression that we use to treat autoimmune disease can be life-saving, but for some of these medicines, there are very real risks of kidney issues or liver issues or suppressing the bone marrow. So we have to keep an eye out for those things so that if it's happening, we can either adjust medication doses or 
you know, look at the medication list to see if there's another interacting medicine that we need to change. And so it's really for safety. So it can be for disease, but it can also be sure that the medicine is, is safe for you and that we aren't seeing signs of early toxicity. Right. I don't want my patients, if it's hurting their kidneys or it's hurting their bone marrow, to end up in the emergency room with bad kidney failure or with no red blood cells because we weren't checking their labs to make sure that the medicine wasn't affecting other things inside them that we couldn't see as well. Right. Okay. That, and and I, that makes a lot of sense. Um, definitely. Um, can you explain the importance of controlling and reducing inflammation that may occur due to an autoimmune disease? Because I know a lot of autoimmune diseases um, cause a lot of, you know, inflammation in your body. So, um, yeah. what's the importance of controlling and reducing inflammation? So, the thing to remember about inflammation and autoimmune disease is inflammation is how damage starts. Mm -hmm. So we start with inflammation and then if the inflammation is kind of annoying your body and your tissues, be that joints or lungs or GI tract or whatever is getting affected, if that tissue is chronically inflamed and being damaged by the immune system, it can start scarring. It can start having more permanent changes in yes. joint bone remodeling. And so we want to stop that inflammation so that we stop future damage that we can't reverse. And so we try really hard with our medicine to get rid of any inflammation that we can still visibly see, um, especially outside of the lung. Right. And we've actually shown in rheumatoid arthritis that treating to target, making sure that we are actively treating the rheumatoid arthritis in the joints, if that's not being well-controlled, patients have more progression than if their joint inflammation is well-controlled with medication, their lungs tend to do better too. So we want to treat all of the inflammation to prevent the immune system from causing damage because the inflammation itself is a sign that the immune system is being too active. Right. Right, because, you know, I was told that, you know, if the inflammation couldn't be reduced in my lungs it would lead to more scarring so that's 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 the um that's the reason why you know i'm constantly being treated for uh inflammation um so that my lungs won't continue to scar further right and so you know in the lungs you're absolutely right that inflammation drives scarring over time right and so we treat inflammation to prevent scar and joints that can cause the joint the joints can actually get eaten away mm -hmm. by the inflammation of the joint we don't want that because the bone can't come back from that it's kind of scarred bone in a way so right. we treat the inflammation to prevent future damage or scar in the lung no. And that's why some doctors may, be, may put you on an antifibrotic medication as well, right? To try to target not only right. the inflammation, yes. but also the scarring pathway to really try to protect those lungs from any more damage. Now, um, in the beginning of my autoimmune disease, due to significant inflammation in my lungs, I was prescribed a high dose of steroids. But I've tapered down to... 10 milligrams currently um, and I know a lot of people 
not just with my disease, but a lot of people with different autoimmune diseases are given steroids. Um, can you explain the importance of tapering down off the steroids if your doctor says you should once that you have um, become stable? Yeah. So the reason why we use such high doses of steroids is that steroids work quickly. You know, when we think about the medicines that we can give patients to treat inflammation, steroids work the fastest and start working within a day or two. Mm -hmm. Whereas drugs like mycophilate or Celsteps or methotrexate or avathioprine, which is also emurators, those medicines can take a month or two even to get them to their goal dose. Mm -hmm. And so we use the steroids first because that's what we can get on fastest to decrease inflammation. The steroids are a double-edged sword and while they work quickly and they're great for short-term control of disease, they're horrible in terms of side effects for long-term issues. Right. So in the long-term, steroids hurt lots of things. They give you early cataracts. They can cause you to be more prone to fatty liver disease and type 2 diabetes because you tend to gain a lot of weight and it affects how your insulin is being regulated. Mm -hmm. It can cause osteoporosis or even what's called avascular necrosis, which is where part of the bone classically the hip or knee can just die because it stops getting blood for some reason that we don't understand. Mm. And, you know, that's why we want to get the dose down as quick as we can. Mm -hmm. You know, in the acute setting or in the sudden onset setting, when somebody is so sick, we can't say, well, I'm worried about the long-term risk of this when I'm watching somebody's lungs be destroyed right in front of me or their kidneys being destroyed right in front of me. Right. But what's safe for a few months may not be safe for a few years. <laughs> yes. And that's why your doctor will try to taper you down to the lowest dose of steroids that you can get on. And that's why we use other medications like Celsept or which is mycophenolate or azathioprine or which is imuram or mm -hmm. caprolimus or rituximab or these other things is we're trying to use medicines to spare that steroid dose. And so they're frequently called steroid-sparing agents uh -huh. because their goal is to replace the steroid that you are using with a medicine that's long, that's safer over years. Okay. And that makes sense. So that's why you use the, the mycophenolate and um, Imeron to take the place of those, the, the yep. steroids. Yeah, we use the steroids to buy ourselves time to get those other medicines in place. Now, a lot of times, um, in order to treat autoimmune diseases, um, you know, we're given medications to suppress the immune system, like, you know, we've been talking about, because all the medications, like the um, Celsep, Imran, the prednisone, all of that, it suppresses the immune system. Um, and it makes it more easy to get sick or, you know, catch things. So do you have any tips on how to keep what immune system folks like me, you know, what we do have, healthy? Yeah. So there's not a way to really, you know, make your immune system healthy or anything like that. The big thing is to be conscious of being up to date on vaccination. So for everyone on your podcast to know, we have a, um, everyone on immunosuppression with lung disease should be vaccinated against pneumonia. And historically, we use 
who are battling autoimmune diseases or um, diseases that have an autoimmune relation? So one thing I would say is, you know, you've got to have a doctor you trust and realize that these diseases can take time to figure out. We don't know how to predict which medicine is going to work for somebody. It's a little bit of trial and error. We have our first-line agents that work for most. Mm-hmm. But even if you're one of the people who doesn't respond to a first-line agent, realize that a lot of patients will get some stability or even improvement on other agents. Um, and so sometimes it does take a little bit of time to find the right medication regimen for you, but it's really important, you know, to listen to your doctor who knows you, your condition, um, what's going on, and that you can trust them. Because I can't tell you how many young women I've heard who have switched over to see me who didn't take their medicine because they didn't trust their doctor. Mm-hmm. And if you don't trust your doctor, find a new doctor. Um, Absolutely. Because it's, I think that's the biggest thing I would leave to people. You need to have that person who you can trust, who you can be open with, who you can say that I don't want to take this medicine anymore, 
and they can tell you why they think that is or is not a horrible idea. Right. So that you have those safe conversations because where I think people get in trouble is not trust their doctor, not follow recommendations, or come off medicines on their own prematurely and then get into trouble. So I think having a team that you trust is so incredibly important. Oh, it is because your doctor is part of your support system. So you have okay. to be able to to trust your doctor and have that relationship with your doctor. That would be my biggest takeaway for everybody. Well, Dr. Wilfong, again, I appreciate you so much for coming on here today with me and allowing me to interview you. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, and I know that this interview really educated and helped a lot of listeners out there. Well, just, I wish everybody the absolute best, and I hope that, you know, your listeners are able to keep, you know, fighting the fight and, you know, living their lives to the best of their ability, because life is always worth living. Well, thank you, and remember, if you out there have any questions or comments, please email me at thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. Again, it's thesilentbattle2022 at gmail.com. And always remember, life is tough, but so are you. Everyone have a great rest of the day.